Good evening, everyone. I'm Allison Camerata. Welcome to CNN Tonight. And thanks to Fareed for that illuminating town hall and the look at where we are one year into Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So we'll have more on that later in the show. We have a lot of stories to catch you up on tonight, starting with the disgraced attorney, Alec Murdoch, making the risky move to take the stand in his own defense. He denied that he killed his own wife and son, but he admitted lying to investigators about where he was minutes before they were shot. So did he help or hurt his own case? And how do defense attorneys decide when to put a suspect on the stand? Plus, we have one of our signature voter panels for you tonight. I sit down with six parents from across the country to talk about the culture wars that are raging in our schools and why teaching black history has become so controversial. The reason why they don't want to have this taught is because it makes people feel uncomfortable. The kids can handle it, I promise you. They're going to be all right. It's uncomfortable, but we need to be having these hard conversations. Look, you have one semester, you have one semester to learn about this huge history, one semester. So you have to prioritize what's most important. And then later in the program, what would you pay to be all alone in total darkness for several days and nights? We'll tell you about the darkness retreat that Green Bay Packers quarterback Aaron Rodgers just emerged from. Okay, but first, to that dramatic day in the Murdoch trial, let's bring in our panel. We have Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast and author of 10% Happier. Great to have you, Dan. We have CNN legal analyst Joey Jackson, also Lauren Leader, co-founder and CEO of All In Together, and political commentator Margaret Hoover. Also joining us remotely is jury consultant Richard Gabriel. Okay, um, I was so surprised, Joey, that he took the stand today. If he, you were representing Alec Murdoch, would you have put him on the stand? I think it's always a risky proposition to put the defendant on the stand. You talk about the analysis that goes into it. Let's talk about that for a moment. The first thing is, is that whenever you're doing a case, right, what you want to do is you want to make it about the reasonable doubt of the prosecution's case. You want to speak to every witness. You want to minimize their testimony through course examination. And then if it doesn't go well, you say, maybe I'll put my client on. Now, here's the kicker. Whenever you put a defendant on the stand, it's not about the case that you did as a defense attorney where you raised reasonable doubt. It becomes about your client. Is your client credible? Are they believable? Are they relatable? Are they human, right? And in essence, do they carry the day? The problem here is that you have a person who's lied and lied and lied and lied. However, <laughs> yes, right? Because he admitted to he that admitted on the stand. He admitted to that, right? So the question then becomes, he may be a liar, he may be a thief, but is he a murderer? And that's what they're going at, right? Last, last point, and that's this. In some respects, you want him on the stand for the following reason. Number one, you have to attack motive. This is a loving husband and father. How dare you suggest he would kill his family? And there is no good reason that the prosecution is proffering as to that. Second thing, timeline. They have him dead to rights. The prosecution does with the cell data, right? The car data. And the, the audio the of audio, him, which he admitted correct. is him. Exactly. So he now has to backtrack and say, reverse, reverse, reverse. I lied about that last. And that is that in terms of who else could have done this? He has this habit. Is he around unsavory characters who could have caused him or his family harm? And his son, Paul, was involved in this boating accident. He was getting a lot of public flack. Could people who were upset with him on that have committed this? So that was the calculus I think they made the defense team in putting him on the stage. That's certainly what he tried to claim today, that it was because the flack that his son was getting, maybe that was the motive. Um, Okay, so did you guys all watch it today? 
How many of you thought that that was credible, that he, that he, sound, that he did himself a favor? Any hands? Anybody think he did himself a favor today? No? Nobody? You want to take this one? (laughs) Admittedly outside my area of expertise, but from what I have learned, you know, it it seems to me that he didn't help himself necessarily. I mean, there, you know, there are so many lies, to Joey's point, that have mounted upon the previous lies. He could only help himself because the case was pretty strong against him. Public opinion was against him. It didn't feel like the courtroom was against him. Look, John Grisham apparently is in the courtroom watching this. There are videos, at least on Twitter, of John Grisham in the courtroom. I don't know if that's true or not. (laughs) Must be true. Um, So so clearly this is a drama that is playing out. This is why people are watching. This is why we're talking about it. But I'm going with... Didn't help himself. Okay, uh, let's go to our expert. So, um, Richard, you're the expert in jury consultants. Would you have put him on? Do you think that he did himself any favors today? Well, it's, as, as Joey said, it's always a risky calculus in terms of putting the defendant on. And for a, another important reason, which is kind of going to Joey's point, do you want the case to be about the prosecution's failure to really prove their case, or do you want it to be about your client? The more time he's on the stand, the more the jury can scrutinize and really look at in fine-tooth comb every little thing he said, whether it's consistent, whether there's inconsistencies. And so it's very difficult to kind of take a look. Look, these trials are all about, especially in a circumstantial case, character is king. This jury is trying to create a portrait. Who is this man? Is he a sociopath who would lie to do anything and, and is a murderer? Or is it just truly an aggrieved husband who has committed sins in his past, but then also is is poss- couldn't possibly do it. Hmm. He did definitely ticked boxes in terms of showing grief. He definitely ticked boxes in terms of admitting about the lies. So he did all those things. The real issue is going to be, at, I think, come up tomorrow in terms of the cross-examination. That's where the real analysis mm-hmm. about how much he's going to hold up. For sure, and how much, whether he's hurt himself or helped himself. Um, Dan, I want to play for you. The reason that he said he lied. So he explained that he lied about the audio. He was actually there in the minutes before the murder. He lied. He, he um, admitted that he lied to investigators repeatedly. And here's why he says he did. I did lie to them. My addiction evolved over time. I would get in these situations or circumstances where I would get paranoid thinking. Uh, And it it could be anything that that triggered it. It might be a look somebody gave me. It might be a reaction somebody had to something I did. He says he had a long opioid addiction. What do you think about him saying that that was the excuse today? Look, I don't want to say anything to defend this man unduly. Set aside where you are on whether he committed the murders. He definitely admitted to ripping people off, innocent people off, his clients who he was sworn to protect. Having said that, I do resonate with his story of leading a double life where he's a prominent lawyer with an addiction on the side. I, in my 30s, was a news anchor on ABC News and had a cocaine problem. And it led to me having a panic attack on the air. And I think millions of Americans can relate to substance abuse, especially in the midst of an opioid epidemic. So I think it's possible that that humanized him. Agreed. In that way, I thought that it was smart what he did there. I mean, it's so painful to watch for all the reasons that Dan just said, because this is clearly a guy who's had so much potential, was on this extraordinary career track and just completely destroyed every part of his life, destroyed everyone around him, destroyed the relationships with everyone who trusted him. And it's heartbreaking to watch. 
And it's on national television. And I think that's the other piece of this, which is like, how do you ever walk away from this? Even whatever the jury decides the rest of his life, this is what he carries forever because the entire country is watching live on national television. And, you know, to Margaret's point about Twitter, you know, millions of people on Twitter every second have their opinions about whether he's credible, was he not credible. But it's just the whole thing is so like the ultimate tragedy we took away today was just how devastating the opioid crisis is and what it does to people. I mean, if any of that's true, and that's another part of it, it's just heartbreaking, heartbreaking to watch. All right, everyone, stick around if you would, because when we come back, we have one of our signature voter panels that's going to tackle the culture wars in our schools. And it's going to try to answer the question, what is woke? The panel is standing by right now to share their thoughts on this topic, because, as you know, the culture wars are raging in public schools around the country. Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida is proudly leading the charge on the war on woke, as he calls it. This month, he rejected a proposed AP course on African-American studies, leading to further debate about black history and cancel culture. So we wanted to know how parents feel. We brought back some of our favorite voters from across the political spectrum, including two parents in Florida, to find out who should be making decisions about our kids' curriculum and why teaching black history is so fraught. But we wanted to start with a definition. What does woke even mean? Here now, our Pulse of the People. For me, it just means being conscious of the racial prejudice and discrimination that's within our society. Um, and just being aware you know, that there are a set of people who are oppressed and suffer from injustices. To me, woke means that you were asleep and then all of a sudden you wake up to racial, gender, social, or general life issues and essentially virtue signal publicly how much these issues mean to you. Um, I think it's the term that's been hijacked, to be quite honest with you. It's a term that was and is meant to bring awareness to marginalized communities. And that was to really start conversations. It has two meanings. To one side, it means being aware of the, the issues of our injustices in the society, uh, being aware of the struggles that other people have and then working to correct them. To the other side, it's a pejorative. It means whatever it has to mean. Last week, apparently, it meant M&Ms are woke. Here's where the wokeness goes too far. When we're talking about canceling math classes, canceling honors classes in the name of equality. Nobody's canceling math. There are ton there's schools in Oregon and California. You can look it up yourself. The problem is we hear these phrases, we hear these terms about, oh, well, the SATs are canceled, they're canceling math, they're canceling. The reality is when you dig down to it, none of it's happening. Yeah. But when you throw the word cancel in front of it, it sounds terrible. Nobody's canceling these things. These things are simply being reevaluated as they should because our kids deserve the best. So this month, uh, Governor DeSantis canceled the proposed AP course on African-American studies. As we understand it, there were specific topics that Governor DeSantis did not want covered. Black queer studies, Black Lives Matter, Black feminism, and reparations. What difference is BLM from the, you know, One Million March or from the march that led on Selma? It's all history. It's a part of our history. So it needs to be taught. You know, the reason why they don't want to have this taught is because it makes people feel uncomfortable. The kids can handle it. I promise you. They're going to be all right. It's uncomfortable, but we need to be having these hard conversations. Look, you have one semester. You have one semester to learn about 
this huge history one semester. So you have to prioritize what's most important. BLM didn't make it because BLM is, is not history yet. Absolutely, 50 years from now, 40 years from now, BLM is going to be in the in the AP textbook. It will be there. In history books, unless it's been 40 years? No, but, but hold on, Aquinas. I think that he's saying it's recent history. And so, you know, you have to make choices. Exactly. It's recent history. So, so history, talk, about that, in your, talk mm-hmm. about that in your current event class. When you get to college, you can take an, an elective on a, a class that deals with that subject matter. But in a 10-week course, there's only so much you can pack in there. So you have to prioritize mm-hmm. Who is to say that Black BLM, Black Lives Matter, isn't history? It's current history. And in AP classes, especially a class that's currently being written and constructed. What is current history? Here's the thing. I understand what Naresha is saying. You've got to pick only so much to go into these courses. But why are we not listening to the people whose history it is? Because the Black community has been very clear. These are the things that matter to them. Black Lives Matter is the most important foundational movement for black liberation in the last 50 years since the civil rights movement. And you're telling me it shouldn't be in history books. I did not learn anything about my history, apart, you know, American history, but black history of African-American history until I went to college. Do you realize that only 40% of black youth actually make it to college? So therefore over 50% of our of, of our youth are never going to learn about their history. Who should be making these decisions? Is it teachers? Is it parents? Is it local school boards? Is it the governor? Is it the National Department of Education? Who should be the arbiter mm-hmm. of all of this stuff? So, so let me see, show of hands, who thinks teachers are the ones who should be making de- decisions about curriculum? Okay, uh, only... only Okay. I mean, I think that's a hard conversation or question to ask. Do I think teachers should have a heavy hand in guiding the curriculum? Absolutely. Do I think teachers should be the sole arbiters of deciding what the curriculum is? Absolutely not. Okay. So teachers should play a role. Okay. Everybody agrees with that. Good. Um, how about parents? Uh, hold on. How about parents? What role should parents play? Advisors. We should be advising the curriculum. We should be providing our input to the proper student or the school body, which in most cases is a county school board allowing them to hear that and and make those decisions. I've seen school board meetings devolve, as we all have, into screaming matches. So, Chris, how does a parent do that at, at you know to their local school board and get any kind of real, um, meaningful curriculum? It's actually really simple. You email the folks in charge and you ask them, how do I help make meaningful change? Because in my county... Going and yelling to the school board is a complete waste of time. But at the end of the day, the, those committees need to be made up of a combination of teachers, parents, subject matter experts, community members. It is a different organism when you're dealing with a statewide Department of Education that is mandating down all of these different requirements. I just think this is a huge attack on public education. And we need to, and it's detracting and deterring from real issues like literacy and equity gaps and real issues that we do need to focus on. Vanessa, you were a school teacher, right? Yes. And I, quite frankly, I think that there need to be national standards. I, I do. You go from one state to another and the standards of education are incredibly different. And I really think that if there were national standards surrounding history, national standards surrounding English, and national standards surrounding math, it's easier 
it's a show of hands, how many people um, want a national standard for curriculum? Oh, okay, so five of you, not not uh, Naresh and, and Roxanne. Everyone should know who Sojourner Truth was. Everyone should know um, what the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence say. But here's the problem. A good percentage of people in California who go to public school can't read at grade level or do math well enough to make change if the computers go down in McDonald's. That is a travesty. I agree. I want to just say that that's the problem. This is the problem in a nutshell. We're fighting over how to teach things like queer history, black history. We're being told that math is racist. And the reality is kids can't read. They can't do math. Those issues are not being taken care of. And a lot of that has to do with the defunding of public education. I grew up in this. Okay, I know what it feels like to not be heard or seen unless it's behind in, in bondage or in like you know, it, it's such a muted history that I, I I have learned through the years. We are already behind the bar of everyone else. So we do struggle more. And then so like we can address the reading issues, we can address the math issues, but are we also going to address address the racial issues with it? Because you can still leave us behind if you're not talking about the disparities within the education. It's it's all intertwined. Okay, so our panel is here next to respond to everything that they have just heard, as well as what Senator Tim Scott had to say about some of these issues today. That's next. All right, you just heard from our voter panel on why teaching black history is so controversial and if the war on woke is a winning strategy in 2024. Back with me now to discuss, we have Dan Harris, Jessica Washington, Lauren Leader, and Margaret Hoover. Dan, I was interested to see in the notes that you say you pay a lot of attention to woke. Why? I pay attention to people fighting. Uh, It's interesting to me how the human animal interacts. I'm always interested in that. And what I took away from that panel was it's great to see Americans disagreeing agreeably. They were talking to each other without mincing words, but without attacks, without ad hominem attacks. That, I think, is what we need more of in this country. One of the things that I found fascinating about this panel is that they all were quite clear on how parents should have a hand in curriculum and teachers should have a hand in curriculum. And you'll see tomorrow when we have part two, I asked them to raise their hand for how many people thought that the governor of the state should dictate curriculum. None of them did. Even the people who agree with Ron DeSantis's position doesn't think the governor should unilaterally be making decisions like that. Yeah, I mean, these are these are questions for look. They all agree that there should be some national standards or some some common standards that everybody agrees to. But they also agree that these are need to be crowdsourced locally, right? That it has to be a combination between parents and teachers and administrators and school boards. And and this is how you this is the secret sauce and the messy formula for representative democracy. And I totally agree with you. Civil discourse is a civic responsibility. And And what they were doing right there, thanks to your sort of guidance, Allison, was the messy work of democracy. Well, Americans are closer together on a whole lot of issues that have become politically polarized. And this is a really good example of this. There's clearly a vocal minority of Americans who are fired up and angry that their kids are being pushed to study subjects that are uncomfortable to them. And there has been this undercurrent for the last few years of just rejection of anything that is about diversity and inclusion. This, This... 
and a lot of this has been pushed by Fox News over the last few years, that anything that is affirmatively trying to right the wrongs of the past or create a more equitable and level playing field is automatically racist against white people. It is fundamentally wrong. But the, ultimately, most Americans, and all the polls show this, most Americans embrace diversity. They understand that it's part of what makes but America great. But some people great. do think that woke has gone too far. I mean, even yeah, people on the left side. That's a that. different question, though, than whether or not kids should be learning some core and fundamental facts about our country. And I'll just say personally, the most rewarding as a white woman, the most rewarding and meaningful educational experiences of my life were the most uncomfortable ones that I was forced to have about race in high school because I was lucky enough to go to a school that pushed us to really think about race and gender issues. And it changed the course of my life. I now have black children. I feel um, completely different than I think I would have in another time. If I hadn't had those opportunities, yes. I'll never understand point, it fully. I'll never understand it fully, but they were the most formative and important mm-hmm. conversations of my life to this day. That's amazing. The ones I had at 16. Jessica. Yeah, and I, I think having those uncomfortable conversations, they have to happen because we can't dig our head in the sand. Unfortunately, racism is very real. Inequality is very real. Gender inequality, racial inequality all of these attacks against LGBTQ folks, these are all very real things. And if we're not willing to have those conversations, we cannot, and anti-Semitism as well, we cannot move forward. And so you're right, we have to be able to have these conversations and people can't be scared that they're going to feel bad. I think that's what has to happen. And I think that's yeah. part of why it can't just be completely left open to parents because I think parents are going to have this instinct. I have to protect my kid from ever feeling bad, ever feeling like they've done the wrong thing. And sometimes you are going to do the wrong thing and it is okay. And we have to teach children that it is okay to do and say the wrong thing and engage in these conversations so that they can become good members of society. What happens when we have parents or political leaders who are Holocaust deniers? What happens when they get on school boards? Does it become acceptable for those parents to say, I don't believe in the Holocaust, I don't want my kids to learn about it? That's actually a real issue in the country today at a time when we're seeing surging anti-Semitism all over the country. So, you know, there's got to be a line which says, you know, the politicization of education is, is, a no, is a no win. It's a no win for families. It's a no win for kids. All of this is true. And yet you can still say, how do we teach an inclusive history of our past? All the things that the... AP standards now still now include, the revised standards in Florida include the history of Africa, the history of slavery, the history of redlining, the history of the civil rights movement. And yet, at what age is it appropriate to teach black queer theory? Right? Does that need to be in the AP standards, or does that, or should that? I mean, be that's ready for and that's about. what we should be able to talk about. Absolutely, you without, have to make choices. Without casting a group of people who are maybe newer to these topics, or or genuinely think maybe that shouldn't be the priority. In, in the thrust of these in black studies, these can be real questions that can be debated without casting people as being uncomfortable with LGBTQ studies. But I think it is, it, we are talking about people feeling uncomfortable with these things because the thing is queer history is a part of black history. You cannot separate it and say that the contributions of queer people to America, to black history, were inconsequential. And also with this AP studies, what we're talking about is not just history. This, stu- this is African-American studies. The idea of what this is supposed to be is to connect what has happened in the past to modern current events. That is what it always was intended to be. That's what the field is. So I think you can't just say, well, queer history is over here, black history is over here. They're interconnected in the same way you couldn't say that black women's history should be its own separate subject. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I want to talk about what Tim Scott, Senator Tim Scott said. So Tim Scott, as you all know, is um, eyeing a political, uh, a presidential run. And he was saying that all of this woke stuff and progressive stuff, I mean, I'm paraphrasing and trying to use shorthand. It, he says that it actually, uh, well, I'll read what he said. These people who call themselves progressive are attacking every rung of the ladder that helped me climb. I was the teenager whose spirit would have been crushed by a culture obsessed with identity politics and racial, racial strife. And he also went on to say that our founders were geniuses. We should celebrate, not cancel them. Indeed, we're a land of opportunity, not a land of oppression. So it's interesting to hear him. I mean, obviously, everybody has a different take on what, um, but everybody has their own take on what motivated them, what was the engine of their driver. And it sounds like, you know, he was able to navigate through clearly a challenging upbringing. And I understand when you have come out of the other end of something like that and you can say, I did this on my own. That feels great. It feels great. But I cover inequality for a living. And what I can say is this is not a problem of people who just didn't believe in the American dream enough. This is not a problem of people who just didn't believe in themselves. These are factors like redlining, like all these other systemic inequalities. This is not just, oh, I didn't believe in the American dream and so therefore I'm living in poverty. That's just not how it happens. Intergenerational trauma. There's a lot. There are a lot of factors that play into this. I think one of the things that's interesting to me is that we're, we're talking about being comfortable with discomfort. It feels like there is a, uh, an uncomfortable paradox that I think most Americans can live with, but it seems like people on the on the fringes can't. Which is that this is a great country. Our founders did incredible things, and they did unspeakably horrible things too. And we have a very painful history. Both things can be true at the same time, and it feels like most people can wrap their heads around this, but. People on the on the edges of the debate are weaponizing it. But I also think that Jessica's right right, that when it comes to your children, you don't want them to feel guilty. So if there's some uncomfortable conversation that's happening, that if they're being made to feel guilty, or if they just accidentally feel guilty, I mean, a byproduct of having this uncomfortable, they feel guilty. Then suddenly, parents want to shield them from. Well, you're just delaying the inevitable, because life is uncomfortable. Yeah, I mean, and that is that is exactly right. The weaponization of these topics, right? And that, and back to to Tim Scott. I mean, look, this has become a very core part of the Republican talking points, really, since Trump, which is this over rotation on, you know, he really weaponized white grievance, and it has become the core of so much of what you know a lot of the sort of core Republican philosophy is all these culture war issues as opposed to, you know, really looking at, you know, the the economy, which they constantly, you know, criticize the Biden administration for. But then the main talking point again and again and again becomes about this question of these culture war issues. I think it's a mistake. Tim Scott is entitled for sure to have his views. He's an extraordinary person who's accomplished amazing things. But for this to be the central conversation, his campaign tells you something about where we're going to be for the rest of this presidential cycle when there's real other much more consequential issues. I mean, I, I respectfully disagree. I think Tim Scott, of course, I mean, I think we agree that he has this extraordinary personal story and this personal narrative, but he also wants to tell a fundamentally what he views as an American story, which is that while we have grave sins in the past of this country, it does not need to define us, and we don't need to be confined by it. And he's doing this sort of political judo move by saying, I haven't been. Look at look at my experience, and I want to be a beacon and, um, and frankly, example for, for a new generation of Americans. And that's, that is fundamentally 
uh, an optimistic and hopeful and not completely disconnected set of experiences. But don't you think that he also is seizing on some of the culture wars because they're easy? They hit people viscerally. People respond. He's seeing how well. I don't well see him going for the cheap doing. shots. I don't see him doing the Don DeSantis thing. I mean, Tim Scott's an authentic guy. He's speaking from his own personal experience. I like this is completely consistent with everything he's said since he's been in public life for the last decade, That's thirteen true. years. That's true. all right. Alice, thank you for all of those perspectives, and we will be right back. Star NFL quarterback Aaron Rodgers just emerged from a darkness retreat. The Green Bay Packers quarterback spent several days and nights in total darkness at a facility in Ashland, Oregon. Before going, Rogers said that sitting in darkness for a few days would help him find inner peace of mind and figure out if he'd continue playing football or retire. We're back with the panel. Dan, I feel like a darkness retreat is something you've done. I have not done it, although I happen to have had a phone call the other day, a Zoom call, with a teacher who leads these darkness retreats and was trying to convince me to do it. Seven days of complete darkness. This guy had done seven weeks, I believe. And what happens on these retreats is that the brain starts to release DMT, which is the active ingredient in ayahuasca, which is a, a quite an increasingly popular psychedelic. So you have these florid hallucinations. So you have natural DMT in your brain. Yes. This and is my understanding. Oh, yeah. That is what they're claiming. Right. A friend told yes, you. Yes. Yeah, and so be. you start hallucinating. Yes. And the point of the practice is to see if you can maintain your equanimity in the midst of whatever the mind coughs up in these extreme circumstances, which when you then return to the world, we could help you with whatever uh, moments of where you're ambushed by anger or a desire to eat a sleeve of Oreos or whatever it is. <laughs> the point is, if you can deal with your mind in these extreme circumstances, you can be better in real life. And is it tempting to you? Very tempting. I'll probably do it. Yeah. Seven days of darkness. Yes. Wow. Why not just take ayahuasca? I'd probably do that, too. Yeah. Didn't Aaron Rodgers also take yes, ayahuasca? Yes, he did. Yeah. Yeah. So, 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 yeah. so maybe it's easier. I get, I get nervous, <laughs> maybe not. I, I, listen, I've had a meditation practice for almost 30 years. I'm a deep believer in people doing inner work. This one, it makes me very nervous when high-profile public figures start like putting it out there when they're doing things that are potentially dangerous and unproven. Is it dangerous? And I don't know. It, I mean, it, we don't like uh, solitary confinement for that reason. I think what we can so say is that this know, is an me... ancient practice. Yeah. I don't know anything about the people who guided him. But yeah. if you've got proper supervision, actually, I think this can be uh, a healthy practice. And you can leave at any time. So you're not, okay. it's not like solitary confinement, which I've also done for a story. I was in wow. solitary confinement for, for a couple for uh, 72 hours, no. I believe, oh and gosh. it was wow. not fun. But I, so, so if yeah. you have the ability to leave, I think that is a, That's a meaningful yeah. differentiator. Yes. This is, just to say again, an ancient practice. It's not like these guys are making it up. Yeah. The question, it really just comes down to the quality of the guidance and teaching yeah. wow. while you're doing it. All right. That, I wish we could talk about this online because I have more questions, but we can't. We have to move on. <laughs> we might have to try it. Yes. He's a man uh, with a strong conservative pedigree, former governor of Montana, former chair of the Republican National Committee. But the GOP in his state has booted him out of the party. We'll tell you why next. My next guest has an unimpeachable conservative resume, serving two terms as the Republican governor of Montana, former chairman of the Republican National Committee, and serving as chair of President George W. Bush's 2004 re-election campaign. So it was notable 
when in 2016 he said that Americans can do better than Donald Trump. And when in 2020 he endorsed Joe Biden, writing, quote, the content of a man's character or a woman's character to serve in that capacity is more important than any other issue that I have to consider as a matter of conscience. Now his state GOP is rebuking him and saying, quote, quote Mark Rasko is not considered by the Montana GOP to be a Republican, that he cannot claim with any authority to speak on behalf of Montana Republicans. It is recognized that he took action to damage, undercut, and defeat the efforts of the elected officials of the Montana GOP and the Republican Party in general, and therefore disqualifies himself by these actions from being considered a Republican. Here now with me to respond is Governor, former Governor Mark Rasko. Governor, great to see you. Um, are you, what did you, uh, are, I guess I should start with, are you surprised that you have been um, excommunicated from the state Republican Party? Well, I don't know that surprised. It may be a little bit sad that um, things come to this point, but I've, in times in the past, I was um, often, or not often, but now and again, um, I disappointed, you know, I tended to um, try to focus on the issues as they were to, um, as a matter of principle, the hierarchy of values, Allison, that I had when I was in office was to try to determine what the right thing is that you're supposed to do. And um, to make certain that I was loyal to first to my country and then to my state and uh, then to my party. And if those things all happily coincided, that was uh, wonderful. But there were occasions where it did not. And I felt like I had to follow what I perceived to be the right thing to do as a matter of principle. So uh, I didn't uh, expect it, but I, I'm not surprised. Doing the right thing, according to your principles, that will never work, Governor. What were you thinking? I'm, I'm sorry, I couldn't hear your question. We were a little garbled with the <laughs> there transmission. Was, there wasn't a question. I'm just so astonished to talk to you because so it feels... Um, I guess, not in vogue right now to stand on one's principles. So often uh, we speak to politicians who do anything for political expediency or have principles one day, and then a month later they say something completely different, or we hear them lying. I mean, what you're saying is so honorable, and yet, you know, you've been punished for it. Do you still consider yourself a Republican? Allison, I hate to tell you this, but um, I desperately want to have this conversation with you, but I can't um, understand the um, hmm. I, the audio was just not um, serving me well. I, I only hear about every second or third word. Okay. Do you, can you hear me now? Um, testing. Can you hear me now if I speak like this or is it still garbled? Well, you know, I think I, I think I heard what you said, but you'll have to correct me if I misheard uh, because I missed several words uh, as you were talking. You know, the bottom line is this, that the country, uh, I think, is uh, feeling substantial tension. Uh, at least the citizens I talk to, I've been all over the state of Montana and around the country. Uh, there's a great deal of concern about whether or not we're falling apart as a democracy, as a nation. And a lot of that has to do with uh, the extremism of um, the Republican Party and the uh, service of Donald Trump. He was a devastatingly... Uh, I think, impactful in a negative way on the United States of America, our Constitution and our way of life. So I knew that I was um, tr probably uh, disappointing some people because I would not support him, and I would not support candidates that were supported by him. 
because I felt he was that much of a danger to the United States. I think that sentiment is spreading across the country. I think you can see it measured in polls and in those who are willing to contribute and those who have an interest. I'm not even certain that Donald Trump has an interest in his own campaign, at least not the kind that I was a witness to in the past. Governor, uh, thank you very much. I'm sorry for the audio issues. It is great I, to have I'm this conversation. I'm terribly sorry. I would love no, to have this conversation. We will. We will have many more conversations as well. You're a delight to talk to. Thank you so much for your time, and we'll fix the audio issues. You're thank a good you. sport. Thank, thank you. you so much. You too. Here with me in the studio is Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast. We also have Republican strategist Joe Pinion, Lauren Leader, founder of and CEO of All In Together, and CNN legal analyst Joey Jackson. What a lovely man right then. So patient right there. Joe, can you believe that? He was following his principles. That's what he was doing. Have you ever heard of such a thing from a politician? Look, I think that, one, he's no longer a politician. I think most Americans follow their principles when they go into that voting booth. And I think that we have to find a way uh, to be more accepting and understanding of those who disagree with us politically. Um, I just remind people that, again, each state has their own party. They have their own Democratic Party. They have their own Republican Party. Uh, There is a national party. So the decisions of the Montana GOP are not necessarily representative of every other state's GOP of the national GOP as well. Yeah, but the the state Republican Party is not being tolerant of his... Principles? Look, I, I think if we're going to call ourselves the Big Ten Party, uh, then we should be welcoming to all individuals uh, who are going to say that they want to uphold our values. But I do think it is the prerogative of the party to simply state uh, that this is a person that is not speaking for us. But I don't think you can unilaterally cast people out of a party, any party. I think that is a bit too far. I think that's where it strains credulity and undermines the public discourse that's required for us to have the more perfect union that I think all of us seek. What did you hear there, Dan? Um, This is not a new observation, but it's deeply true, which is that we have this structural dysfunction in American politics where the extreme wings of both parties are super empowered, largely by social media, and then they feed off of one another. And the rest of us are stuck in the middle. And I think this is just a exhibit Z in this ongoing problem. I I disagree, though, because I think there is actually a very dramatic difference between what's happening on the extreme side of the Democratic Party and what happens on the extreme side of the Republican Party. On the Democratic Party, the squad, which is arguably the most left-leaning wing of the party, has never once hijacked legislation. Nancy Pelosi, when she was Speaker, passed every major bill that she was out to pass, and they were never able to hijack the party or the agenda because of those four or five votes. They passed the bills they wanted to pass. On the right, unfortunately, you have the most extremist members, people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert, who hijacked the speaker process. And you've got a national um, sort of trend around fealty to Donald Trump, which is starting to wane. But that has been for the last number of years, you know, the absolute. And you look at what happened to Liz Cheney, you know, what happened to people like Rusty Bowers and, and Cassidy Hutchinson, people who stood up for their principles, stood up for democracy, stood up for their values and the extent to which they were not only castigated, but threatened. Um, and it's a problem because every both parties should be big tent parties. We can't function as a democracy if they're not. I just think that, I mean, 
one, I don't think the right wing has hijacked the speaker uh, fight. The speaker fight was contentious because of the fact that it is one of the slimmest majorities since World War II, uh, best only by the last majority that we had with Nancy Pelosi. So I think that is probably more a testament to the strength of Nancy Pelosi than it is to the actual uh, waning of an end particular party. But, I mean, and you I saw them, well, you saw them not voted for him 18 times. I mean, they were, well, they here, were here, falling the, out. He, he, and, here's and, the and Marjorie Taylor Greene got if leadership you, positions if, on, commis- uh, on committees again, in this, exchange. This, we can't live vote. in this world where all of a sudden, where if one Republican anywhere says or does anything, then the entire party is responsible I for it. But if 20% of Democrats are in a, agreement on something, that somehow that is not reflective of the actual trajectory of the party. So I think ultimately when we get back to this conversation, we should be simply talking about how do we have a functioning government? How do we make sure that the will of the people is actually being realized in the policy? Yeah. And from my perspective right now, to your point, uh, the policies that Americans want to see traction on, the education of our children, the economy that is effectively moribund, none of those things actually get priority because we're stuck here with the culture wars, the infighting, the backbiting, yep. and this but, circular... But it's conflict. bigger than that. Hold on, Joy. Hold on. Yeah. Good news. Um, we have Governor Rasco, Rasco parachuting in <laughs> via phone. You know what? We've just gone old school. Back to phone technology, which should work. Governor, can you hear us? I can, yes. Thank you. Uh, so, Governor, the question, our question now is, do you still consider yourself a Republican, though you've been cast out of the state party? Well, you know, to be honest with you, the, the journey has revealed to me, I, I don't think it matters. You know, I think there's a transcendent question here that's confronting the entire country in both parties, especially uh, mine at the moment. Um, and the fact of the matter is we, we have to learn how to live by the virtues that are embedded in the Constitution. And what that means is, very simply, everything from good manners to trusting each other, respecting each other, believing in the possibilities of the country, recognizing that moderation is required, that compromise is required, that we have to, we don't get everything we want every single day. I don't know any relationship, any human relationship that works that way. And what we have was a bunch of people yelling and screaming at each other instead of respecting and trusting each other. This is a massive issue across the country. And frankly, I think it's one that can tear the democracy apart. The adhesive is brittle. The communications are absolutely fierce and ferocious, directed at one another, tearing each other down. We've got to refine our connections with each other. And that means in these deliberative bodies, they reflect what's going on in the rest of the country. So these competitions, they're screaming and yelling and forcing uh, legislation on the basis of numbers, constantly looking to accumulate power and control and make our pitches. This has all become a performance art Hmm. instead of a dedication to try and get something done on behalf of the people of this country. Governor, that was worth it. Thank you for calling in. I appreciate those notes that you're sounding and that final wrap up. And we've all been talking about civil discourse. Everybody agrees. Um, and can't he just call in and be our life coach the every night? The next answers night? are going to come via Morse code, I think. We're just going to keep <laughs> regressing technologically. Yes. That's right. All right, stick around, everybody. Coming up, the NTSB has uh, written a report. They say that the toxic derailment in Ohio was 100% preventable. So what will it take to get accountability? Next, we're going to talk to two people who live in East Palestine and want answers.
frustration is still boiling over in East Palestine almost three weeks after that train full of dangerous chemicals derailed, spewing toxic fumes and driving people out of their homes. Residents there had a lot to say last night in our CNN town hall with Jake Tapper. If you do not feel safe living in East Palestine, raise your hand. I don't know what the future holds for my town. Um, this has the potential to really decimate a small town like us. You know, I'm 65 years old, a diabetic, AFib heart, heart disease, everything. Now, did you shorten my life now? I want to retire and enjoy it. How are we going to enjoy it? You, you burned me. Joining me now are those two residents, Jessica Kennard and Jim Stewart. Guys, great to see you. You were so hey, powerful last night. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for having us. Yeah. Thanks for being here. So, Jim, what's the past 24 hours been like for you now? Wow. <laughs> I'll tell you what, I feel like uh, I've had a lot of heroes. I mean, you're, the, you're our hero now. I mean, you've made the voice for East Palestine. You said what we all wanted to say. And uh, I'm glad I did because that's who I'm here with, for East Palestine. We're a good little town. We need this popularity here. It's great. We love it here. Hmm. I'm so glad that people felt that you were the voice that they needed to speak out for them because you did it so powerfully. Um, at one point, you know, you were talking to the CEO of Norfolk Southern, um, Alan Shaw, and you were just telling him that you you have this is your home. You've been there forever. You wanted to retire there and you feel robbed. And some one of your fellow panelists yelled out that that, you know, Norfolk Southern should buy your home from you. Is that what you want? I mean, what do you want out of this from them? I want to live on with my home and my house and everything. It's, you know, we love East Palestine. I say we've, I've been there forever. You know, I've known all kinds of people and I've coached sports and kids and I've enjoyed the life there. And I just, I like to be safe. I'm scared. You know, like I say, we got issues still that need to be cleared up and it takes time. I understand it takes time, but something has to be done. And like I say, if we don't get the voice out there and people are, believe me, I've got people calling from Canada and everything, I want interviews and things, it's great. But, uh, you know, we want work done on this. We want to get it done, get it done fast, get it done right. Yeah. And did you connect with Norfolk Southern today? Did the CEO reach out to you? No, I heard nothing from nobody from Norfolk. I don't know if I, I, <laughs> I hit him too hard or what, I don't know, but he's, he was listening, believe me, and he heard every word. He, he, he might be a great man. I'm not turning him down. I'm just saying this company just is weak there. They've got to get some work done and get it taken care of now. I mean, trains are coming through 50 a day now already, I mean, three weeks ago. So, I mean, it's, it's crazy. I mean, I know that's our business, but we have a problem, and, and they damaged our area. And that damage needs to be done. It's not a train derailment. Like I said yesterday, you know, it's, it's, it's a disaster. And they've got to pay for that and get it right. So, Jessica, how about you? What's your life been like in the past 24 hours? Have you connected with Norfolk Southern again? I have made attempts to connect uh, directly with Alan Shaw, um, working uh, with a couple different connections. I was unable to make contact. Um, I did actually receive a phone call to get my well uh, tested today, which uh, my phone call out to them to get that scheduled was on the 15th. So I was really happy that that did happen today. It felt a little suspicious since, uh, you know, I did speak with him directly uh, on, on national television. But, 
you know, I think it's a it's a it's a step in the right direction. And you know, I think there's a time and a place to to call people out and to uh, make people accountable. And I think we're at the point in this where. There's been such an outpouring of support for what we did yesterday um, from our town, from the community, from surrounding communities. Like he's, I had people reaching out from all over the world yesterday, which was so humbling. I, I'm just a mom from East Palestine and, you know, a, a town where really nothing, nothing really ever happens there except, you know, we're safe and, and family oriented. So, you know, I, I think now is the time to unify um, we we need Alan Shaw and you know uh, Mr. Regan and 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 Governor DeWine and Pete Buttigieg was there today. You know we need all of these people on our side and and I will be the biggest advocate um, if 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 Mr. Shaw if if you trust us we'll trust you and 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 we will work with you. Um, yeah. And, and I think that's my that's my message today is, is it's time to unify and, and get the work done. You're looking for cooperation. I think that's what you even said last night. I mean, that's what you all you're willing to work together. You just need help. There was a moment last night, Jessica, where you had this exchange with Alan Shaw. And I want to play it for everybody because I want to see if there's been any movement on that. It's the oil that's seeping into our ground that you chose not to dig up and just put your tracks right over top of it. She's asking you specifically, what led you to that decision? Ma'am, we've made a lot of progress on environmental remediation. We've dug up 4,600 cubic yards of soil and collected 1.7 million gallons of water. We will continue with environmental remediation and in early March, we will start by tearing up the tracks and digging up the soil underneath the tracks. For six weeks, oil's going to be soaking into our soil. So until then, we'll just have it keep going down. Keep going in, in our, our soils. So, Jessica, then last night, Norfolk Southern sent out this tweet. We will now excavate the soil and replace the tracks in response to feedback from the citizens of East Palestine. Work on the first rail line will begin immediately with the second line to be replaced directly after. So that was right as you were that was as the town hall was beginning. So had he heard you? I mean, what what how do what's the timing of that happening there? You know, I think Mr. Shaw had every opportunity to bring that up during the town hall, and and he chose not to. So I I do find the timing quite suspicious, but here's the thing. I'm ready to move forward, and if that's the plan and they're willing to do that immediately, let's get it done. Jessica, Jim, thank you very much for the update. It sounds like there's still a lot we need to learn and you need answered and a lot of work that needs to be done. But we will continually check with you to see what progress is being made. And so thanks so much for your time and for sharing all this with us. Thank you, Allison. Thank you for having us. Okay, up next, a 19-year-old accused of going on a killing spree in Orlando, killing a young reporter and a nine-year-old girl. Former Orlando Police Chief Val Demings joins me.
Tonight, new body cam video shows the moment that Florida deputies took down the alleged gunman suspected of killing three people in Orlando. The video shows the suspect struggling as officers subdue him, eventually pulling a gun out of his pocket. One of the officers notes the gun is, quote, still hot. The 19-year-old suspect is now in custody. Authorities allege that on Wednesday morning, the suspect first fatally shot a 38-year-old woman, then returned to the scene of the crime. Hours later, continuing the shooting spree, that killed a TV reporter and a nine-year-old girl. Joining me now is former Orlando police chief and former Florida Congresswoman Val Demings. Congresswoman, thanks so much for being here. What an awful story. I mean, this shooting spree, um, it, it killed people. It has people who are still critically wounded in the hospital. Do you have any thoughts on how this all unfolded and why? Well, Allison, look, we are still trying to figure out the why, but this is such a horrible tragedy uh, for this uh, community. It's just such a sad story on so many levels. Five people shot, three of them dead, as you've indicated, a nine-year-old child, a news reporter. You know, I, I served as the public information officer at the police department for a while, so I had an opportunity to work very closely uh, with the media, a 19-year-old uh, in possession with of a gun who has a very extensive criminal history. This this story investigation is still unfolding and we are desperately, I know the uh, detectives and the sheriff is desperately in this community trying to find out why did this happen. Congresswoman, can we just zero in on that part that you just mentioned? He was 19 years old. He had an extensive rap sheet, as you just said, for things like uh, aggravated battery, assault with a deadly weapon, gun violations, grand theft. How was he not in prison? The question is, why is he not in prison and uh, how can he be in possession of a gun? The prevalence of guns in the wrong hands lead to shooting sprees like this almost on a daily basis now in this country. And while you know, we were pleased with the Safer Communities Act that was passed in Congress. There had been 30, it had been about 30 years before we'd passed any legislation. We know there's still much more work to be done. And we've got to have federal legislation that can hopefully help to prevent mass shooting after mass shooting after mass shooting from happening. Let's talk about the state of being a police officer right now and what Governor Ron DeSantis is doing to seize on the, it sounds like, low morale and disenchantment by some police officers. So he has traveled to typically blue states. He went to Illinois, he went to New York, and he went to Philadelphia, and he made this pitch to police officers there to come to Florida. So here it is. We created a program that if you come from out of state uh, in one of these agencies and you go any agency in Florida, city, county, state, uh, you get a $5,000 signing bonus right off the top. My message is if, if you're disenchanted, if you, if you don't think things are going to turn around, wherever you are, not just in New York, wherever, uh, just know that there's a state that, that's doing it right. There's a state that, that will value your service. What do you think of that pitch, Congresswoman? You know, Allison, it's, it's, it's really pretty sad. And I know Governor DeSantis wants to run. I, I think he's running uh, for president. But what he's demonstrated is he believes that any group uh, can be bought and sold. 
And uh, let's just think about this now. He is asking uh, out-of-state law enforcement officers to leave the communities that they love. Uh, yeah, it's a tough job. I know it's a tough job. But he's asking them to leave the communities that they love, the communities that they protect and serve every day, to uproot their families, to leave their extended families, maybe the places where they uh, grew up and come to Florida uh, for $5,000. It just demonstrates to me that he really doesn't know much at all about law enforcement officers. The overwhelming majority are good, decent people who risk their lives every day to serve their community. So to yeah. suggest that they would give up their home states, the states where they're serving, for $5,000 to move to Florida because he's promising them something as a presidential candidate is really pretty sad but, to but me. It's almost, but, but Congressman, I think, what insulting. He's partly true? I mean, they are disenchanted. I'm just looking at the statistics here. In terms of U.S. police departments around the country, re retirements are up 40 percent in the past two years. Resignations up 30 percent. In New York, the New York Police Department, uh, with about 34,000 officers, has seen more resignations this year than any time in the past two decades. So isn't he fastening on something that's true in terms of police officers wanting out? The only thing he is talking about is low morale and being disenchanted. There are a lot of reasons why police officers retire. Look, I spent 27 years there, served as the chief of police. Many of them have served their time, and it is time for them reti to retire. Many of them are injured on the job and need to uh, retire. And so to suggest that the overwhelming reason why police officers the men and women who wear that badge and are dedicated to protecting and serving their communities to suggest that the only reason they're retiring is because they're all frustrated and disenchanted. And the only thing that matters to them is a $5,000 signing bonus, I think is really underestimates the dedication and commitment that the men and women in blue have for the job. Congresswoman Val Demings, we really appreciate your time tonight. Thanks so much for talking. Thank you. Okay, back with me now. We have Dan Harris, Joe Pinion, Lauren Leader, and Joey Jackson. Joey, you and I were just talking um, about how about that Orlando case. 19 year, years old with a long rap sheet, not in prison. It just, I mean, this is so tragic. This case in particular, because this violence cuts across every um, element of life. A mom is shot. A nine-year-old is shot. A young budding journalist who just got engaged is shot. I mean, it's ruining lives across the board. And he's 19 years old with a long rap sheet. With, uh, with an extensive record. How do you get an extensive record when you're 19 years old? But it's a larger problem than that, right? We could talk about this community or we could talk about so many other communities throughout the country that are experiencing horrific gun violence. And you ask yourself, what is it going to take? And I thought about this, Allison. Is it legislation? Uh, do we can we legislate morality? Can we legislate proper conduct? Can we legislate humanity? Can we legislate people behaving like human beings and respecting one another? I just don't know. It starts in so many places, right? It starts in homes. It starts around kitchen tables. It starts around schools. Schools. It starts with mothers and fathers. It starts with, yes, respecting the right to freedom to bear arms, but with that comes certain responsibilities. And when it's not exercised properly, we get these mass shootings. Very sad. I didn't grow up with active shooter drills. I didn't grow up with uh, daily mass shootings uh, as part of my life. I'm not that old. Uh, this 
is directly tied to the continual rollback of gun legislation, which worked in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and through the assault weapons ban, which was ultimately repealed. There's, of course, a direct correlation. And the only we are the only nation in the world who has such permissive gun laws and also the only nation in the world that experiences these kinds of multiple times a day mass shootings. Americans have had it. And Americans agree on this. 80 plus percent of Americans and by want the way, to see common sense gun control. I want to get to another story that is connected to guns, because I, I think that this I think so many people are frustrated and don't know what to do, including this superintendent in this small town in Texas. He is it's outside of Abilene after Uvalde. This superintendent and principal decided to arm themselves because they didn't want to be at the mercy of some crazed, unhinged, you know, young man who comes in. So they carry guns. Now, they took it upon themselves. They decided to do that. And the superintendent, who was apparently beloved in the community, left his gun in a school bathroom for 15 minutes. And a third grader stumbled upon it and found it. And thank God... Nothing tragic happened. The, the third grader went to the office, reported it. But, I mean, obviously it could have gone badly. But this superintendent was trying to protect the kids. Well, look, I, I think first and foremost we're grateful that that child is okay. Um, and I think it just means that we have to have a greater level of vigilance. I think, you know, to Joey's point, we're talking about, in some ways, two different issues. On one hand, we're talking about what is the response that we should be having uh, with this acceleration of mass shootings, with this acceleration of violence within our communities. But the other part, again, getting to the core issue of the fact that criminality is run amok, that, yes, we have a problem with guns, but we have a problem with illegal guns, not just guns in general. And so I think we're not having, I think, the very focused conversation about what do we do about the scourge of illegal guns? What do we do about making sure that we have 21st century best practices to protect our children? Because I remind people uh, that there are best practices for the children of power. If you're a child of a president, if you're a child of a diplomat, Mm -hmm. they come in in the middle of the night, they change the windows, uh, they change the doors, and they put an armed guard there uh, who dresses up like a janitor. So I just think, again... But what does that mean for the rest of everybody? I think what it means is that we should be asking the question, why are we not having the same standards Standard for everyone else's children. Wait, I'm we supposed do. to live in an armored house now because Americans treasure their guns more than the safety well, of my I didn't family and my about, children? I didn't say anything about your home. I'm talking about schools. I think, again, it's an infrastructure problem as well. I'm from Yonkers, New York. All right, We are close to a uh, billion dollars behind on school renovations. The average school building in my hometown yeah. is 70 years old. It is not equipped to deal with the modern-day threats to those children's everyday liberties. So I just yeah. think on some basic level, yes, uh, we, have a, we have to deal with the fact that we have those legal guns, we have to deal with the fact yeah. that we have these community Okay, Dan, I want to get Dan in. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just to go back to the point you made earlier about the pain and pathos here of this story, there is so much pain to go around here. In particular, I'm thinking tonight about our fellow journalists. You know, journalists are not the most popular people in our culture. Let's just be open about that. And yet they, especially on a local level, are risking their lives all the time to tell stories that matter in their community. And this is what happens. And journalists have been under siege increasingly, not only here, but around the world. Mm -hmm. And that's an important story. Absolutely. More journalists killed, I think, in the past year than in recent years. And he was 24 years Mm -hmm. old and just getting his start being a reporter. Um, Brent, thank you very much. Now to this. When Russia launched its war in Ukraine one year ago today, one Ukrainian couple moved up their wedding date. They got married that very day, then joined the fight to save their country. And we're going to talk to them next.
Vladimir Putin's launched his war on Ukraine one year ago today. Here's the moment that CNN's team in Kyiv first heard the sounds of projectiles flying overhead as they rushed to put on protective gear. And that's when they knew the war had begun. I think it's relatively safe at the moment. Look, I've got a... Oh, oh I've got a flak jacket right here. Let me just get it, get it on. I'm being told by our security that we need to get our... Our flat jackets on, which we're doing. For one Ukrainian couple, the beginning of the war prompted them to get married. So on the day the war started, they tied the knot. And right after the wedding, that same day, they signed up to volunteer with their local territorial defense force. Svatislav Fursin and Yurina Ariva join me now. Guys, thanks so much for being here. Uh, happy anniversary. Thank you. Thank you. That's not the kind of anniversary we would celebrate, but still, that's really strange that the year has passed and it was so long and so so quick at the same time. <laughs> you know? I can understand. And so when you look at the pictures that we just showed of your wedding day, uh, Irina, what what do you see? What do you think when you see that picture? I feel that kind of fear and not understanding what will be, uh, what is to, what we are going to expect, what will be to our land or our country in few days. Uh, I was afraid, kind of, but still, we were going to protect our country, and uh, that was no like question for us to go to the territorial defense after the wedding. So uh, we have made a decision to uh, uh, to marry like in one hour because uh, we have decided it before like uh, that we could do it. Uh, and when the war started, it was just the only uh, way uh, to do it because, uh, you know, war can separate people or it can make them like stick together. So I didn't want to lose my husband because of the war, because of the all the things terrible which we had to go through uh, this year, but still, yes, yeah. the year has passed. And so what has this year been like for both of you? At the beginning, uh, it was really hard because we were the territorial defense. My husband was going to the combat missions and uh, it was really hard for me psychologically because I didn't know what to expect. Uh, I, didn't, I couldn't hear from him, I couldn't call him. And uh, every minute I was afraid that maybe he could get injured or die. And uh, that, that really ter- terrified me much. But um, then... Uh, it became a little bit easier, maybe psychologically, and uh, we were at the territorial defense for one month uh, and maybe one week, I think, uh, just before the, we have left, before the moment, uh, uh, like Russians have left uh, Kyiv regions. Kyiv region. After that moment. After, after, after that moment, moment yes. I think, yes. And uh, then we have been volunteering, uh, we have been bringing humanitarian aid to people uh, in Kyiv region uh, on the deoccupied territories who need it. We still are volunteering and using like the moment. Uh, I would say that we are collecting donations for a bus uh, because our car was broken, uh, so we could uh, uh, bring humanitarian help and also help uh, like aid for soldiers again. And uh, like it will be very helpful because, you know, uh, it's very important for people to remember about Ukraine, to remember about this war, how important this war is, because uh, 
this is the war uh, against uh, between two worlds, yeah. between democratic world and uh, total, uh, totalitarian world. Yes. And uh, you know, like we have to win this war bec uh, because we have no other options. Yeah. Other options is just Russia moving moving further, further, bringing this Russian world and uh, all the. Uh, terrors, deaths, and horrors of it. Yes. So well, just... I mean, you two have certainly sacrificed a lot and sacrificed um, your, you know, the first year of your marriage obviously wasn't supposed to be spent like this, but you have done this for your country and it's really honorable and we're so glad that you are together and not apart uh, and that you got married. And so congratulations on your anniversary. It's great to see you both and we will check in with you again soon. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, interestingly, when President Biden just went to Kiev, he went to the church where they got married. Mm -hmm. And there's video, I think, of him visiting that church where, you know, exactly a year ago, these two got married. I hope we can mm -hmm. pull that up. Um, can you imagine? I mean, can you imagine being a, a young person and deciding on the day that you get married that you're also going to sign up to volunteer to fight? I mean, the first year of marriage is always hard, but uh, <laughs> exactly. if, if, uh, this is unimaginable what they're having to put themselves through. I get a little disappointed with myself, honestly, for finding that I am not as drawn to these headlines about the war as I was a year ago. And it does say something about human nature in some ways. The, the stakes couldn't be higher. Nuclear Armageddon on the line. And yet I find myself scrolling back some by some of these stories. And it reminds me of something that a young Senator Barack Obama said in the mid-aughts. Uh, I think he was talking about Hurricane Katrina and our lack of attention to that. He said, America goes from shock to trance faster than any nation on earth. That's what was yeah. so powerful about Biden going to Kiev this week. I mean, to turn the eyes of the world back in the way that only the American president can it was riveting. It was just the most incredible demonstration of American resolve and really forced Americans to to face what is such a critical issue. And on yet, the if you state. look at screenshots of the front page on the websites of local news mm -hmm. uh, from around the country, it wasn't on there. Mm -hmm. And so that tells you something about where our attentions are. Yeah, but right. you, ha you have to really give a, a lot to the Ukrainian people, what they've gone through, their resilience, their ability to fight back and to really protect what is so near and dear to them. Uh, and so I think even, you know, with Biden going there means an awful lot. Every single time we speak to one of these Ukrainians, it's inspirational. It mm -hmm. gives everybody strength, what they have lived through. Mm -hmm. uh, we will be right back. One programming note for you. Join Dana Bash as she goes inside the fight against the world's oldest prejudice. This CNN special report, Rising Hate, Anti-Semitism in America, begins Friday night at 9. Thanks so much for watching tonight. Our coverage continues. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 
and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.